0: The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag.
1: I how ye might well show us your crooked jaw.
0: But it cannot stay in the Shire.
1: No. No, it can't. Must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word, as I hate hell All Montagues. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rob.
0: I am joined today by my brother Clayton. Go ahead and say hello.
1: Hey everybody
0: so uh you've heard his voice before i was we talked a bit about his experience with skateboarding on a previous episode and in conversations it came up that things he's studying right now are actually in alignment with a lot of my interests and a lot of the topic matter that we deal with here on my podcast um, which is storytelling and writing and clayton is studying um how storytelling can shape identity but before we dive into that I, i wanted to take a little bit of a tangent uh, if you're all right with it, Clayton. Um, <laughs> sure. I think if historians and you got a
1: master's in history, right? Yeah, my master's degree is in history. Okay, and you're getting a PhD in linguistics. Uh, no, my PhD is in French literature. Oh, that is so, so ling- cool. Linguistics is a component of what I do because I, you know, I teach. I teach uh, you know, foreign languages and it's, it's an interest of mine. Um, but my, my main, my, my, my real focus is, is on literary criticism. And so, um, but, but I, but it's, it's, it's quite historical in nature because, um, I, I study medieval French literature. And so, um, there's, there's just a lot of overlap between, um, uh, history as a discipline and medieval literary criticism. So,
0: so we're gonna. Kinda, get...
1: It's kind of a marriage of those
0: things. That's cool. We're gonna get into some interesting stuff here in a second. Um, but I have the the unfair advantage in this interview of having uh, spent m- almost every day of our upgr- upbringing together, and <laughs> I have to say, if history were to look on our childhood, our adolescence. I think they would be much more interested in your stories than mine, and oh. yeah, what, um, why do you why do you say for, that? For one reason, and that is that I was very afraid and hated getting in trouble. <laughs> and I think that Clayton, and maybe maybe you disagree with me, but but I think that uh, you were much less risk averse. I think you were Uh, much less intimidated by authority.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Um, I definitely, I, I was, I was, I think that it was like, and I was intimidated as much as any kid is, but it wasn't a deterrent for me. Right. Like still, (laughs) So I think, yeah. So I, so I think risk averse, like you said, it's, it's like, you know, I was going to do what I wanted to do. I was just, more concerned with how do I do this without getting caught? How do I do this without getting in trouble yeah. rather than probably what should have been happening, which is saying, this could get me in trouble. I should not do it. Which,
0: which was by my approach. Definitely <laughs> all growing up was like learning the boundaries and then staying within them because I didn't like even being scolded or knowing that an adult figure was upset at me. Like that was just the worst for me. Um, <laughs> but what you probably don't know is how much I suffered on your account, because my uh, aversion to getting in trouble was so big that even when you got in trouble, I felt it. <laughs> and um, the, the perfect example of this is, uh, man, one of the most terrifying moments uh, in middle school was being called down to the office. I'm in school. days; It's a normal day. Suddenly, they come over the intercom, you know, and they're... Burr. Mrs. So-and-so, can you send Carson Teejan to the office? And so the whole way to the office, I'm thinking like, what did I do wrong? What did I, what is going on? And then I get to the office, Clayton, and the worst thing that could be there, it's a cop. An officer, oh, no. a, a Madison County police officer is there and he's like, can you step into this room? And he's like, do I understand that you were walking home from school yesterday, da-da-da-da-da? And I was like, no i ride the bus and he's like are you friends with uh mr 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 ard i he's my neighbor but no i'm like he's in totally different grade he doesn't go to the school and then it became pretty quickly apparent that that officer was not there to interrogate me he was looking for you oh of
1: course of course do you you know what
0: do you know the experience that i'm referring to
1: yeah i know exactly what this what this is what this is i i had no idea that you had you had that experience though i don't think i ever heard that you had been a, like interviewed by a police officer trying to figure out who had trespassed yep. in poor old marianne beck's house
0: so so go with this <laughs> go with
1: us on this clayton tell us tell us what happened so you're going home we're walking home from okay. school So, so my, uh, my best buddy growing up next door neighbor, Brett, uh, he had a paper route in our neighborhood and on the, on the far edge of our neighborhood was this kind of dilapidated old house where, where an elderly woman lived by herself. And he, he would tell us stories about what was in her house. He said, number one, it's probably haunted and maybe this sounds (laughs) so illogical, but keep in mind, we're like. 13. She's probably a ghost too because she's so weird. The house is full of mothballs and there are wigs everywhere. She's like a witch. She's like, like, we want to, you know, like, I think we had all seen the, 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 the yeah. doll uh book turned to film witches, right? Where they wear right. the wigs and whatever. Cause he was like, there are wigs on the walls. Yep. Like, I remember you hooks. telling me all this <laughs> stuff
0: that you can tell a witch because they have a wig. They're, they're, they
1: uh, have square <laughs> shoes because they don't have toes. These yeah, things. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, uh, anyway, so he just he just would tell these 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 like horror stories about delivering the newspaper to her house, and he said that she required him to bring it inside of her house, not just set it on the porch, but actually go all the way in the house and put it inside, and so. Uh, we, we, of course, me and, and another friend, we wanted to go with him and see this house. And he, so we said, okay, next time you deliver the paper, we're going to come with you. And, uh, so we, we did, we went, we went to our house and we went around, he said, you have to use the back door. So we went around to the back and we went inside and we looked around and sure enough, like mothballs and wigs, like hanging off of hooks on the walls. I don't know. There must have been a dozen wigs and uh, and it was just like this old house, right? And uh, anyway, we looked around for a minute and then we're like, oh, this is too spooky. Let's get out of here. We went running. And as we ran through this this woman's backyard, we saw her pulling into her driveway. And so we were like, oh, no, you know, but well, she probably didn't see who we were. So let's just like pretend like this never happened or whatever. And uh, yeah, uh, I guess – uh, you know after making a few calls to parents around the neighborhood and nobody fessing up to it, she started to bother the uh, Madison County Police Office and Which,
0: uh... if I remember right, Clayton, I think <laughs> didn't she call the, the Madison County police often?
1: Didn't they like know Mary Beck? Oh by I, name? I think yeah, I, th- I think that I think that it was like they already had a <laughs> had, had lots of dealings with her for sure.
0: So before that incident at the middle school, I remember coming home from school. Um, the day that it happened, and it was actually later that evening when Dad got home from work, and uh, you had already told me, "Hey, like the some Mary Beck's been calling. She's saying that we were in her house. She's so crazy." And um, when Dad got home, I remember he took me aside and he asked me, "He's like, hey, did did Clayton tell you anything about going into Mary Beck's house?" And I was like, no, Clayton talked to me and said he didn't do it. That's She's weird. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And of course, I'll, I'll come back to this point in just a second. But tell us how this story wraps up.
1: Well, so, you know, just the, you know, because it was scary to get confronted about it. And then you tell a lie and then it doesn't go away. People keep asking you about it. You know, you start to get nervous. Well, the next day at school, I got called down to the office and, uh, there was a, pol- a police officer there, probably the same who one who talked to me, <laughs> probably he was there and he sat me down and he said, tell me what you did yesterday. You know, tell me, tell me about yesterday. And so I started into the stories. I usually told it, you know, we were just, we we're, I don't know. We just, we were, we walked home from school and we came to the neighborhood and went about our business. We didn't, you know, but anyway, for, as I was, as I was telling him the usual lie I had been telling, I it just dawned on me that, like, if there's a police officer here, like, ta- asking me about it, this isn't just going away, I probably need to fess up, we didn't do anything that big anyway, so, so I finally was just like, okay, we went in their house, we looked around, it was scary. We saw some wigs. We ran away. You know, like yeah. uh, I, I, I owned up to it. And my favorite part too is like this, this, this police officer just kind of like smiles and nods and he's like, "All right, well, I'm really glad you told the truth, because guess what I've got?" And he pulls out a, uh, um, a sticky tab with fingerprint. Uh, samples on it that he had taken apparently from her house from the doorknobs of her house
0: okay this just speaks to how (laughs) the crime level in rexburg idaho these cops had probably never had the dust for fingerprints before and they were like "Ooh, finally a chance to like
1: practice my uh,
0: forensic skills
1: well, you know, honestly, in hindsight, it probably was just random fingerprints. I doubt they had anything yeah. that like could have actually been pinned to us. I'm sure he was just going to use that to like scare me. But yep. because I had already like come forward with, you know, with the truth, he was just like, "It's good thing you it's a good thing you told the truth cuz we've got fingerprint evidence. So you'd be in a lot more trouble if we had had to go to this point." Oh man. <laughs> and so, and so yeah. So I was I was uh, you know, then I I had to face the music, he sent me back to class and said, I, you know, I'd be hearing more about this. And as I'm leaving, one of my other friends was on his way to the office next, and so I'm passing him in the hall, and I said, they know everything, don't lie. <laughs> um, but, uh, so so that friend, Steven, he went in and he told the truth, but then the was third Steven friend, with Brett, Stephen was, was the other one, okay. yeah, it was me, Steven and Brett. And, uh, uh, so, but, but nobody, nobody crossed Brett in the hall. He was the last one to go in. And so nobody warned him not to lie. So he went in and he continued to lie and he actually got in more trouble than we did. (laughs) Really? Yeah, he did. So I just remember you
0: doing community service hours. Yep. Um, you were on probation for
1: what, a few months? A few, a few months I had to do, I had to do, I think it was, it was like 10 hours of community service. And And I just... It really, I really think it was just to placate this poor old woman, you know, like who, you know, this lonely old woman who's got these local, you know, punks (laughs) trespassing in her
0: house, like. Um, So I remember in hind, like I remember a few days after. First off, thinking my brother's a delinquent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then I also remember being so grateful so immensely grateful that you didn't tell me the truth because oh, yeah I would not have been able to lie to dad I would not <laughs> have been able to lie to the cop that showed up like like it was too you big it was of a burden too, for me to bear too much pressure he would have you would have caved at the pressure yeah I would have <laughs> man I should not be a secret keeper I'm like yeah authority always scared me um and actually that that uh, as I think about that, I, I'm realizing things about myself. One of the reasons that that I love stories is because I love the idea of adventure. But as I've gotten older, as I've gone through life, I've realized that, like, I don't actually want to be the one to go
1: through <laughs> it goes an on adventure.
0: It. <laughs> right? Like, I'd much, yeah, much I... rather sit back and enjoy someone else's adventure and that's what you know part of that is what has inspired me to write um and be so interested in movies and books and stories because you can live someone else's venture someone else's adventure without uh dealing with all the consequences right um so yeah so those are some some formative experiences for me growing up i think (laughs) i think they're probably formative for you um, but but let's talk. Let's let's fast forward uh, a number of years to now. You're you're studying literature and you're studying French literature. And I love this idea. Um, you and I kind of exchanged ideas before sitting down and chatting. I love this idea of of narrative shaping identity, and then identity is also shaping narratives. It's 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 like a two way street. Um, at film school, we we talked about this a lot. How you know, the things we watch on TV impact the way we perceive the world, but the way we perceive the world also impacts how we're telling stories. Um, so I, I guess the first place I wanted to start, though, as, as I'm sitting down with a scholar such as yourself, um, the, there's this interesting balance uh, between when it comes to storytelling in all of its forms. Um, and that is the question of entertainment. Or art is, is storytelling purely just for entertainment? Is it purely just for art? And obviously, um, you can't divorce the two. Um, but, but in the story that we just, that we just talked about, to me, that's super entertaining to relive. I hope, I hope some people enjoyed, um, I hope they enjoy hearing about that. But there's also a moral in it. Like I walked away from that being like never, like (laughs) never mess around with
1: other people's stuff. Like that was the moral I took home, (laughs) even if it was the wrong moral. Uh, Yeah, that's funny. There, that's that's true. the the way The way you interpret the story you you hear is uh, is is important. Um, That so that's funny that that's the moral you got out of it. I went through that experience and my takeaway was learn when to uh, learn when is the right time to persist or to give up, right? That was my takeaway because Because I realized if I had just when, when it, you know, when this, when, when, when that, when this woman started calling around the neighborhood and questions were first being asked, if I had just said, Hey, you know what? We did this thing. It would have ended there. I yeah. never would have had these other. It, it wouldn't have gone so far. I wouldn't have even been in that big of trouble because I didn't even do anything. It's not like you know we went in this person's house and broke things or stole, stole things or anything. We we walked in, looked around, and walked out, and it just was the not wrong that lady. Big of a deal. Yeah, just it was just the wrong house, you know, and and uh, um, and so so my my takeaway was that it's just like you know what like recognize when is the time to say like, okay, I give, I give, you know, I'll admit to this or when the right time to say like, no, if I, if I persist a little longer, I'll get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I, and so that, I mean, that was my, you know, childish takeaway from the, from the situation.
0: It's interesting because I could follow this up with another breaking and entering story. Um, I don't know that we have time for that.
1: Um, but now I'm curious.
0: (laughs) That wasn't the last time that you went into someone's house without permission. Remember the house at the end of the street? Uh, I think it was when family
1: moved out and it was just vacant. Oh, yeah, yeah. When it was was up for sale, we we went in that window and we... I spent a whole summer hanging out in that house. (laughs) (laughs) I debated bringing this up, Clayton, because I don't know what the
0: statute of limitations are in Idaho for uh, breaking and entering. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that's the funny thing is, again, I went with you guys. It was funny for me for about 10 minutes to be inside this like house. Uh And then it just got to me and I was like, I'm out of here. And me and my little buddies, we left and we're like, it's not worth the risk. But you just said that you spent the whole summer hanging out in this empty house. Oh, yeah. No,
1: no. So it was so it was it was for sale that whole summer. And we we had like a little we had a little collection of all of the real real estate cards. So like when realtors show that house, they leave their business business card on the table. And if and a lot of times clients don't take those with them they just leave them there so every time we went in we would have a new real estate card and so we had like a little (laughs) stack of them of like how many times it, you know i i didn't know what they were i didn't even know what they meant at the time i had no idea why these different business Business cards kept appearing on this table it's only now that i'm like oh because they were real estate agents showing the property of course um but yeah we we collected those and so yeah i probably you know we 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 kept this one after after breaking in uh, breaking we found with a ladder that one of the upper story windows could be just pushed open. And it's so somebody crawled in to breaking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. we, so we definitely broke in. Um, and then we just left a lower window uh, unlocked could so, that we, could, so that we could get in and out. So yeah, we, we do And the funny thing is, it's like, we didn't, we didn't do anything. Right. You know, we didn't do anything well, in there. The house it was, was empty like, too. Was... But the house was vacant and, So like, it was just kind of cool to just like go inside this empty house, you know, it was was, like kind of, it was kind of fun. You know, you'd go inside and like sit in a room for a little while and be like, whoa, like this house. Remember who
0: used to live here? Like, I love getting these two different perspectives on the exact same experience because it shows like like you said the meaning that you derive from a story actually shapes how you feel about it how you feel about life and i I think we actually probably create beliefs about the way the world works around us based on our takeaway from stories um so i'm curious to know uh you're studying medieval um french literature Uh um I, I'm just curious how much of that is shaped by religion and a desire to be a moral arbiter for people um, at the time, because I gotta imagine that that plays a large role in these stories that are
1: told. It 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 depends on the text. It depends on what you're what you're reading and what you're what you're getting at it. Um, the uh, the you know the the Middle Ages in france were definitely um a very religious time but maybe not in the way that we would think of like take somewhere like like where i live in the bible belt or in uh where you live in utah these thick very strong religious communities that are very I, i don't know if i don't know how analogous things are to that it's a lot of it is more like uh it's just a given that it's a part of these lives so what i so so what i so what i i study is 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 epic okay um epic poetry in french it's called chanson de geste and it's it's or the translation that would be song of deeds right so there's these there are these stories these long stories in poem because because all all vernacular literature um, before I don't know almost almost before like 1250 is in verse, right? They didn't write in prose in the vernacular yet, and uh, very little prose. It was written in Latin at that time as well. It was verse was just how you wrote, right? And so you've got these stories in verse um, about. Uh, ancient times. Well, that's maybe not the best way to put it. What to them were ancient times? About two or three hundred years prior, right? So, so the so these these epic poems uh, appear around 1100, and they were very popular for about 200 years, so from 1100 until into the 1300s, before they were becoming uh, sort of sort of got got replaced by by romance um which is not romance novels but more like uh um, um like the the arthurian romances mm-hmm. right percival lancelot the, the 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 green knight those these stories right um so 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 bit, i'm getting myself i'm trying to answer your question but i've got to give a lot of background I uh, to feel I like to i'm, all the to, feel like I'm to feel like i'm answering it uh fully so, uh, so so, during this period, though, you've got these, these, these stories, and they are looking backwards from the 12th century. They're looking backwards on the 8th century, so a couple hundred years earlier, to the time of Charlemagne, okay? So Charlemagne was, uh, was like this Frankish king who uh, was the first one to revive the title of emperor, since the the since the roman empire ceased to exist in the west um at least to exist as a political unit right he he kind of revived that title he gave himself the title of emperor because he had conquered so much land he felt like well i've essentially reassembled the western roman empire and so his time is viewed as like as a high point in medieval civilization within medieval civilization right um not uh so, so from their own perspective in the 12th century, they're looking back and saying, look at the achievements of our forefathers. Look yeah. how great the, these times were. So you've got all of this literature that comes out of uh, stories being told about those times. They were understood at the time to be history, sort of. It's unclear how much people – saw them as just stories and saw them as history. They're not historical. They're often based loosely on historical events and you can often even see kind of like a thread from like, okay, here's the historical person who actually existed and had that name and some things about their life seem like maybe over the course of two or 300 years being told by their descendants you can kind of see how okay, maybe that's how this story came to be. It's it seems almost like to reflect some of these actual historical the, the 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 facts that we do know about this person in their life, but they're certainly not any kind of his something we would call historical today. I think it's interesting that when we look back, we're like,
0: well, are these histories or are these just narrative, and and I have to I have to wonder like, a does it matter, and B
1: did they care? Like, did it matter to them? That's actually what I was about to say. And that's the thing we're really concerned with is that, you know, would this be a history or would it be or whatever? And, um, one thing that's, that, that, that is being heavily pushed back on in, scholarship of these texts today is what prior generations did to them so so early so the 19th century and the early to mid 20th century all they were interested in doing when studying these old french epics was looking for details to inform history they mm-hmm. weren't interested in these as texts they were only interested in oh look at the lavish detail they give about armor and weapons and look at what we can learn about the actual history and it's only been since the latter part of the 20th century that scholars have started to say these are interesting in their own right and we need to study them as such we're doing a disservice to these texts by only trying to extract like historical fact from it and so and and that's and that's and that's that's exactly what i was was going to say is that so so in English, we say history and story. But have you ever noticed that story is in the word history? Well, in other languages, story and history are the same word. So our word history comes from French, which is histoire, which is H-I-S-T-O-I-R-E. And that's also the word for just story. Like if you tell your kids a, a story, you tell them Une histoire. Yeah,
0: it's the and exact so, same thing
1: in Portuguese, historia
0: is historia um, That makes sense. They're they're the same.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. German die Geschichte. That means history, but it's also just you can tell somebody eine Geschichte, yeah. right? A story. Yeah. And, and I've gotta so,
0: imagine that that these texts, I mean, there's gotta be value in looking into the, the whether or not they actually happen the way they say they happen, isn't there value in looking at the 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 psychological state of of people and and like what's important to them or not uh, based on what is in these stories
1: and kind of the message uh, that they're conveying? Absolutely. absolutely. And that's exactly that's exactly what what the research I'm doing uh, looks at um, is, what can this tell us about the expectations of the audience for these poems? Um, so we they survive in written form for us, but they were circulated orally. So the the major mode of circulation for these epics were by people singing them. They were meant to be to be sung or chanted in uh you know in the in the market square or at the at the court of you know an important local noble when they have their their feasts and things they would have somebody stand up and recite these things they would sing them perhaps accompanied even maybe by a like by a lute or a, a little drum or something but so so we don't there there's no surviving indication of whether they were sung to a melody or just sort of chanted rhythmically it's it's more likely that there were that it was mostly rhythmic because of how they're written. They're so rhythmically metered as well. Um, uh, they, they, when you read them out loud, they really just roll off your tongue. It's like, oh, okay, I can feel the rhythm of this, you know. But, um, but, but they were they, but so, so that tells us a good deal about their audience though. They, they were being sung to, um, an, 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 an aristocratic audience of. Young nobles, knights, right? Young men who um, were uh, were of the of the the warrior class. They, you know, their their kind of role in society in that time was as warriors, and they uh, these these poems are very much targeted at this group of of individuals. Do we know how come that was targeted at these individuals?
0: Like why? Well,
1: for the epics, it's be- I mean, first of all, that's what they're about. Okay. I mean, they they just they 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 uh they completely extol that lifestyle, right? This lifestyle of the errant knight who leaves home because they, you know, if you're if you're not the eldest son who's going to inherit your father's castle, you got to go make your way in the world. And you do that by going out, you wander around with a group of, of other young nobles. You, you go to tournaments, you fight, you, you, you practice your thing, you, you cause trouble. You, uh, you may get sent off to war depending on how things work out. So first of all, you, uh, you're, you're hoping to find service in the, um, court of a more powerful noble so somebody who can afford to give you room and board and hopefully what the hope is is that someday they will grant you your own piece of land and you can begin your little dynasty right um, so you're definitely going to be going to service for this lord which means that if he fights if he does That's any battle with whoever local or, or goes away you're going to be on the front lines of that you may also follow him off on crusade. This was during the crusading period, right, where every every couple of decades a new crusade to the uh, the Levant, the, the the Middle East, happened, and so um, it's quite likely that you are going to die, kind of a violent death, and that's an expectation. But there's glory in that, right? There there's kind of this attitude in the epics that that's like that's part of your life, but that's you know that's what you. That's what so, you that's what you signed up for.
0: That's incre- that's incredibly interesting to me. Um, this idea of using narrative to to generate the glory in something that's got to wow. be very, very difficult. I mean it's it's this it's this interesting dichotomy with depicting war. Um, we see it in films and books even today that it's really difficult to it's really difficult to tell a story about war. That, you know, frowns upon it that says war is bad, because that's like the message of every story about war is war is bad, but at the same time it like secretly glorifies it. Yeah. Like well. I'm uh, thinking that's... saving Private Ryan. Um uh-huh. I, I mean you think about these shows where it's like, yeah, this is atrocious, but at the same time it's like but like the it's sniper so does some cool things and it's so exciting and it's like the tension yeah. is really, really high. Um and I can't help but wonder if, like, if, if these narratives are the way that they create uh, sort of a, a, a milieu where you recognize that it's okay to die for these things because there's glory in it. And that's how you motivate men to be willing to go, I mean, do these hard things.
1: Yeah. So that's, that. those are, those are good thoughts in there. I think there's definitely an aspect of that to these texts, uh, that I, that I, that I study. However, one thing that these texts do not shy away from is just glorifying war battle combat. Yeah. I mean, they are, these, these texts are more like a superhero movie right. than like a war movie. Right. So in that, like, like think about like, like the Avengers, right. When they fight, we don't we don't care about the casualties we don't care about the collateral damage we're excited about it because we want to see iron man charge up his suit and just blast thanos with that huge beam you know we want to see thor swing that hammer so hard that he just takes out a whole circle of bad guys right that's how these epic poems read. They very much glorify the prowess. That's a word that you read all the time. Is the prowess yeah. of these of the knights in these stories who are able to, in the heat of battle, bring their sword down on an enemy that cleaves them from the skull all the way through the crotch and then it cleaves the horse they're riding in half as well. Right? <laughs> you get you get these, and it, they're they're incredible and they're g- gory, so, but. Uh, you get these but, descriptions of that kind of that kind of cartoonish violence. But that's that's kind
0: of what I'm saying, though, because if they de- depicted it, if they depicted war and its atrocities and its true nature, and tried to bring some level of how sobering that kind of thing could be, imagine the effect it, it might have on those reading these
1: texts and yeah. their willingness yeah. to go do these things. Right. Right. So um so i so i think that that's i think that's that's in it that's a, a, a good um yeah certainly a good point um i think another thing is that these texts seem to be they're they're written for this audience they're they're also they also seem to be often written by this audience Right, there's there's stories, there are songs that this very audience was keeping alive about their their ancestors, you know, the uh-huh. the, the people they they kind of glorify from the past. And so, so so to get back to your your question earlier about like the 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 kind of the influence of religion in these, there is certainly lay religion under uh, on display in these in these yeah. in these medieval epics, um, you know, and it's very interesting to read what aspects of religion mattered to these so, men. I, it's I, not I, questions of theology or morality or anything. It's more like it's like there are certain observances that are important. They swear a lot, and you're often, you know, like, I mean, like, you know, uh, but what I mean by swear a lot is they're, like, constantly, you know, like, by Jesus's leg bones. I will kill you. You know that it's it's this it's this kind of like they they make these oaths, right? Like, yeah. it makes you understand where the modern use of the word, of how we swear an oath, but we also swear with a swear word. How, they, how swearing that comes and cursing from, has become synonymous. Is for synonymous. Us. You can kind of see it in this because the way they do it, you're like, yeah, that's pretty much just a curse. Like that's you know they're like, <laughs> that's yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're a lot of fun though. These texts to read, um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because as, as I mentioned earlier, the, as romance, like the Arthurian romance started to take over in popularity over the Epic. And one of the things that's crucially interesting or or different about Arthurian romance is it actually shies away from the violence. Mm -hmm. So there's still stories about knights going out on quests, doing their things, but, uh, you get you get authors of these who often will tell you, and then the bad, you know, the the battle with the other enemy knight began. I'm not gonna belabor you with the details. The good guy won. Back to the story. We're gonna move on.
0: That's and there's even a couple
1: of references where they say you can read about how this kind of fight goes in other in other stories. I'm not interested in in going into why that. Why do you why do you think that is? That's because they were moving away from the epic because of the epic. I mean you'll have you'll have verse after verse after verse of just like and he chopped the head and this mm-hmm. happened and he'd swung his sword so hard he broke it on the man's face, you know. I mean it's just like Well it really it really champions it and I think it was just like you know, we wanted to uh um soften things a little bit and it also speaks to audience as well because that's where my mind went the audience for romance was broader and it seems to have been very interesting to women whereas epic doesn't seem to have appealed to women very much because because honestly there's not a lot for them there are very few female characters in the epic when they are there they are there Um, they serve a very different purpose than women in the in the romance um tradition do and so yeah
0: well and i man that's super interesting to me i love i love hearing that um my my instant thought was it had to be audience because i i think in all times if you don't have people willing to listen to your story if you don't have people willing to read your story you don't you don't really get to tell your story i've often said that um, when it comes to movies and books, um, if you don't like what you're seeing, um, you're voting wrong. <laughs> because at the end of the day, Hollywood will make anything that people are willing to see. And there's loads of people. I mean Transformers is my favorite example. People are people they they rag on the Transformers movies so much, and then we all roll mm-hmm. out and watch them. I think the, the Transformers movies that came out at the beginning of 2020 was the first Transformers movie to not turn a profit. Really? And it's like number six. Wow. And everybody says they hate them. I haven't met a single person that's like, I love those movies. Yeah, I haven't. I had the same. They are all multi, you know, 200, 300 million dollar grossing films at the box office. Um, wow. And I'm like, yeah as long as people keep voting for them, they'll keep making them. Yeah, and and so I'm very interested. Tickets. Yeah. I'm very interested to know, like, how does that, that apply? So what you're saying about how the violence took a backseat, as soon as we entered the romance phase, I wonder what, like you were saying, my, it, my first question was, what's the audience? Did they like stop being interested in
1: that? That gets beyond my scope. Cause I don't study romance literature. Um, but I, I do know that that's a big question is to, yeah. you know, there's a point where they, Romance and epic are side by side, both very strong. When romance comes onto the scene, epic is at its height, and then it steadily gives away, and romance takes over for a period. And um, and and you know, it's essentially the 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 precursor to the to the the, the modern novel, right? Okay. Um, but uh, so so it's it's unclear why how that happened exactly, but it also does seem to possibly be tied to the decline in the 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 cast of the knight. so what what i mean by that is as we get towards the later middle ages mercenaries were becoming more and more common as you're fighting Body to make to make up the vast majority of your armies are mercenaries or conscripted non nobles, right? Okay. So in the earlier Middle Ages, um, the the period that that's known as the High Middle Ages, so the eleven okay. hundreds, the twelve hundreds, um, your your fighting forces almost exclusively made up of, uh, uh, no, nobility, right? Um, these these. Uh, aristocratic warriors who were, you know, either on the lower end of the spectrum, they, they were either just like your lower end, they were squires, they were not knighted yet, or then you get your knights, your shock troop. They're like the the, the major, mm-hmm. you know, powerful part of the of these medieval armies. But um, as the Middle Ages wears on, that cast begins to. Uh, fade away for a number of, of various, various reasons. And the, the biggest thing is that people don't want to die. <laughs> people don't want to go, go and fight. And so if you were an aristocrat, you employed lesser aristocrats. Employed is the wrong word. You had lesser aristocrats in fealty to you. They owed you allegiance and they would serve you in battle right and then you every aristocrat was also beholden to somebody higher there's always somebody higher than you in the chain And so they are required, you're required to send them your services as well, just like these guys under you owe you service, you owe above you service and so forth, right? So depending on the scale of the, the war that's being fought, if it's something local or if it's something larger, regional, you might get several layers of this, I don't know, almost like pyramid scheme of nobility going off to war. But then as you get on towards the later Middle Ages, they started to uh, – these nobles who owed service started to say, can I just give you money instead? How about instead of me bringing my body and my horse and my equipment, what if I just pay you? I've got cash. What if I just pay you instead? And so lots of nobles started accepting monetary payments in lieu of service and that started to change the whole thing because now oh now I can get out of like dying in battle um I just give you money and they say well who are we going to get to fight then we'll hire somebody to fight in their in their stead and so this is where mercenaries and and other kinds of conscripted soldiers really come to take on and the whole idea of knighthood that was being you know sort of Glorified. figured out and well figure figured out and codified and determined by the time they had really gotten it like sorted out to the point where in the later middle ages we have this idea of like a knight who respects the ladies and does these things and and honestly where we get this modern idea of what chivalry means that comes from this codification for a caste that had almost disappeared by at that point not not disappeared their actual military service had almost disappeared, right? They were no longer nearly as important.
0: I recently read this. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Ken Follett, The Evening and the Morning. It's the prequel to The Pillars of the Earth. It is a, it's fiction. takes place in England in 99, I mean, from 997, 998 to about 100, 100 1002, 1003 so that's the time period it's taking place in, similar to when um, you said these these epics are being written. Um, and of course this is fiction, but Ken Follett is known for extensive research um, and he does a really good job of depicting the crassness and the, the kind of split standards when it comes to morality of the time. Um, and his, his main villain in this book is a religious figure who has an incredible amount of power and learning because he's a bishop in, in the church. And, and that's why I, I kind of launched the the beginning of this question, is I was wondering how much, when we're talking about how storytelling can shape identity, the first thing I think of is, is morals, morality, the moral character of a person. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could speak that to, to that uh, at all, if things happening in France are different than maybe they were uh, as depicted in Ken Follett's book
1: in England. Well, I don't. So I don't. I don't know that book at all. So I. I can't. I can't speak to any of the specifics of it. Um, you know, I think one, one thing you learn to do as a historian is to be very careful about any of the assumptions you make when you look at the period in question and you want to really, you want to really, you know, look at that period on its own terms, right? Not, not, not impose modern ideas about, uh, really about anything on it. If you want to have a truly, uh, Holistic understanding of yeah. that of that time period. Um, so so I think, we can, well, we can well. So so to come back to epic texts, though they they certainly have their own morality, which is which is what I was embedded, driving. At. Embedded in them is that, and and yeah. it and it can seem foreign and strange to modern readers, right? Um, and uh, I think by the way, the reason I brought up
0: this Ken Follett book is I think he intentionally is trying to show the the way things were back then, that we have maybe glossed over, or we focus on the nobility, the chivalry of the time period. And it's like actually the the layman, as seen from the layman's perspective, like life was really, really hard in a lot of different ways. Um, and the morality of it is a lot more nuanced than maybe we we judge it with you know our modern eyes so i'm very interested in this conversation about the morality and i want to hear all about how you, you say in these
1: epics the morality can be strange to us so just for example, so what I, there's, a, there's a big question that has to do with this that I'm, that I'm trying to answer with my research and I don't have a very good answer for yet, but I can definitely talk about the, the, the circumstances and show you the questions that I'm looking at and I, I think you'll see that it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, so there's this question of what makes a trader in these tales. So these tales say that so these the, the the epics are all based on a division of characters into three silos. Basically, you've got you've got royal power, um, Charlemagne and his offspring and certain of his men. Sometimes it's all of the all of the French-speaking people who live at Paris or at Aachen with the, at the time you know uh, that these tales are set in. Um, or uh, so so that's one column and they're, they're kind of, they're the most powerful they're the king, they're the emperor they're, you know, it's Charlemagne it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's his group and then you have traitors, okay and these are those who are described as those who would have um, those who would have all of the world in the palm of their hand because they're such good, powerful knights, but because they're traitors, they, they 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 can't. They they always will be their, their their own undoing. Okay? Um so this second group are called the traitors, and there's a whole series of epics about traitors within this group. And um the original epic, the oldest one we have is called The Song of Roland, and it even the whole plot hinges on one of these traitor characters doing wrong to a member of Charlemagne's closest entourage, and um, uh, and so so this like idea of treachery is embedded within the epic as being like that's like a like almost like a character type right there are certain characters yeah. that are traitors, and then the third branch are uh, they're a slightly bit harder to categorize but they're kind of like they're 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 the heroic branch right they're neither the first or the second group and they are heroes and they are good and there are more epics written about their line than than any other group and they um they're 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 they're, um yeah they're 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 heroes right they're not traitors and they're not royalty and so they're they're this so what what makes someone a traitor well, that's that's what is so unclear. That's what I'm trying to uncover and get at. Um, most of the time, it reads as though you're a traitor because you're a traitor. Okay. Which so the statement so stands. In, like so logically, in, so. that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's and this is where it's important not to read our expectations onto it too much because yeah. we want there to be like well there's got to be something but um so so the the epics do give us some ideas and one of the biggest things that makes one a traitor is uh pride being pr- uh, pride is the wrong word envious okay envy and jealousy are what produce traitors or are the or i should say not even produce those are the traits of traders. This is so interesting because, as we would define
0: trader today, we're like, it's simple. There's two teams. A trader is someone who leaves one team and joins another team. Right. But you're right. saying trader at this time has, like, there's a characteristic, a human characteristic trait that denotes someone as.
1: As traitor. being this kind of tra- yeah, so so in the in the origin in, in the earliest epic that we have, uh, the Song of Roland, this traitor character Ganelon, he he lets off this 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 whole chain of events because he's very angry when Roland puts him up for being the one who has to go to the enemy and give them Charlemagne's terms for their surrender. He didn't want to do it, and his his nephew actually is who he is puts him up for it and so he's so mad that when he goes to this other to this 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 enemy camp and they're they're saracens in spain they're they're muslims right um and uh he goes to them and they're surrendering right it's it's supposed yeah. to be over but he goes to them and he says hey guess what when we leave roland is going to be uh commanding the rear guard." If you ambush them, the main body of the army will be too far away. You'll be able to take them out. And let me tell you this. Roland is Charlemagne's most important guy. He's Charlemagne's right-hand man. If you kill Roland, Charlemagne's power is done, okay? Ganelon only does this because he just wants Roland to get killed he's not planning on joining these guys he didn't do it for money he didn't do it for he's, he's just a, mad at he's just mad at roland so he does this thing but the consequences are that yes roland dies in this thing it's a tragedy um he's he's a tragic hero right he's he's at the very last battle blowing his horn he's got this you know this like uh this this old this horn that he's blowing on it blows so hard his temple burst and his brain pours out the side of his head because he's trying to signal charlemagne to bring the army back because we're under attack and and he goes he, he's the final one standing he kills everybody but then dies from blood loss and angels come and take his soul off to heaven and it's this whole thing so it's a tragedy right yeah the epilogue of the story however is that charlemagne comes back and no Roland isn't Charlemagne's only powerful. His whole army is still very powerful. They they destroy the these Saracens completely. And then they take Ganelon back to France where he is put on trial. And even when Charlemagne's jury the, of nobles that he calls to help him judge in this matter, they say, hey, Ganelon was angry at Roland. This sh- This is forgivable. He's a good noble. You should let him off. Charlemagne says, no, no, no. He's a traitor. He needs to be drawn and quartered. And so Ganelon is tied up to four horses who are driven in different directions with, and torn apart. <laughs> I think I'd agree with Charlemagne on this one. <laughs> so so ganelon is a traitor, right? And he's his not only uh, does Ganelon have to die, but 30 of his closest relatives. Also, are put to death in the in the story about this. So it's it's brutal, right? Yeah. The, the treatment of when you become a traitor, when you or when you, honestly, and I it's it's see, they're betraying modern things when when you become the epics treat these characters like they already are that that yeah. that's what's the weirdest thing to get away from. So in in so so I don't study the Song of Roland. It's been studied to death, and and it's honestly been kind of a disservice to the rest of the epic tradition because so much attention has been put on Roland because it's the oldest one. It's the earliest one that we, that that still exists, that it's shadowed these other ones and and they haven't gotten as much attention as they, as I think they deserve. So I study later ones. Um, they're, they're, they're about a hundred years later than when Roland was, was first put to, to put, put on parchment. Um, uh, well, actually, vellum. I was thinking pen to parchment, but it's actually it's actually not parchment that's being written on it this time. It's vellum. Um, but nerdy, <laughs> nerdy <laughs> side note. <laughs> so, uh, um, so so I study these epics that are slightly later, and they are mostly about this third branch of epic character. And what's interesting is that, and what got me interested in studying these is that they are more often than not stories about rebellion. They are narratives of rebellion, okay? So I my, my main text is called Gerard de Vienne. And so it's a story about Gerard and his family. They go serve Charlemagne. And uh, after a period of service, he grants them land, but then because of some disputes that they have, including uh, the, uh, uh, the, the queen tricking Gerard into kissing her foot, um, Gerard's clan gets really angry and declare war on Charlemagne. And Charlemagne comes down and sieges them in, in their walled city, and there's this big, you know, seven years of siege where they're fighting back and forth and there's all these like entertaining moments of going out and fighting and whatever. Ultimately, the rebels capture Charlemagne in the woods. They separate him and capture him and bring him back into the city and extort a pardon from him, okay, <laughs> right? The, he That's agrees awesome. to he agrees to peace with them so that they'll let him go. And it ends essentially with a happy ending. He comes out of the city and all the Franks that were outside were like, oh no, Charlemagne's with them. What's going on, are we dead? And he says, no, it's okay, there's peace now. Everything is is okay. And I'm reading this and I'm like, how is this not treachery? How are these guys not the traitors, right? They're not. This poem from the very start tells you. One of the first lines of the poem says, this is one of the best songs about the best knights France ever saw. It is not a tale of treachery or envy or jealousy. It is a tale of heroic deeds and these things. And so from the outset, it's like, no, you're going to hear all this stuff about rebellion. It's not treachery though.
0: Why is it?
1: Yeah. See, and this is what's attention and what has me so what, what I'm what I'm trying to answer. And as I said, I don't have full answers yet. I have ideas, I have theories, but I'm, I'm still, you know, working through the texts and trying to find out how they hold up. Within the text, within this very text, there are traitors, there are characters who are spoken of as traitors. So for example, um, at one point when Gerard is a younger man and he's still in charlemagne's service uh when charlemagne decides to go ahead and knight him one of charlemagne's court says don't do it charlemagne i know who those guys are they're from the south their dad was a bad guy he used to uh he used to hide in the rivers and jump out on bridges And capture pilgrims and monks and priests and he would strip them of their clothing and all of their valuables, beat them up, and then leave with their things. He was a rapscallion. Those are his kids. Don't let them into your court. They're bad news. They will only bring you unhappiness. So this is the guy that says that, right? Yeah. The narrator of the poem then says, this man… Is a traitor and is full of jealousy and envy, and it's a and and then the next thing that happens is that Gerard and his brother, who heard him trash talking their dad, <laughs> they grab him by the beard, beat him, drag him across the floor, and hurl him into the fire, into the open fire, and he gets all like torched, right? Like, and you're like, why is that guy a traitor? What did he do wrong? But the narration of the poem, and so the audience for this poem, which is not a king, by the way, it's 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 these knights, it's this yeah. it's this group of rowdy knights in in smaller areas, um, not you know in this it not not in the king's court, but in much smaller um, little regional courts and the stuff where they're hearing this this story, they're hearing that and they're like, yeah, that guy deserves that. That guy sucks because I know what it's like to have my dad trash talked and even if my dad did those things uh, the poem never says he doesn't do those things the gerard never says that's not my dad he didn't do that you're lying it's not a lie it's jealousy he's jealous that they're joining charlemagne's court and his prediction comes true they do bring charlemagne all sorts of frustration and ruin they they end up kidnapping him, holding him for ransom, basically extorting peace out of him, right? But throughout the poem, they are not traitors. They're even in open battle with Charlemagne's men and they taunt them and say things like, you bunch of traitors, what are you doing? They retort back, we are not traitors. (laughs) We have a just cause, therefore we are not traitors. Anyway, so it's 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 fascinating. So, thinking about the the authors of these
0: epics, and they're different authors, correct? Yeah. And obviously, I mean, this is something that you're researching, but I'm just I'm just intrigued. I, I'm I'm wondering what they were, knowing their audience and knowing kind of the 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 way the story unfolds and the fact that this idea of traitors is this strong thematic element. What do you think? why like why why do you think they're trying to so hard to 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 say traitors are this but not this like what's
1: what were they trying to
0: shape with their narrative
1: well so that's that's where that's where identity comes in and what 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 i'm what i'm looking at and how this how this near this type these narratives were impacting how their audience saw and understood themselves they see yeah. themselves reflected here in this poem these characters they go through a life cycle that is very familiar to your standard young knight of the 12th century, right? They go through a period of errancy. They find service in a stronger noble's court. They have all sorts of adventures and some suffering. And ultimately, they're rewarded with a thief, okay? A castle, land, a castellany, right? Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the life cycle that uh, knights from about the 9th century, but especially, or starting somewhere in the 9th century, but then definitely into the 10th and 11th century. That was the life cycle. That was how the aristocracy worked, right? And during this time, it's really hard to speak of a France, a Germany, you know, an, an Italy. It's, they were so there. There was a king of France during that time, but he was really only king of Paris. You know, he didn't yeah. have that large of a group. All of these, this huge network of nobles and this this multi-tiered, like I said earlier, pyramid scheme of like who owes fealty to who, um, is very widespread, and it dilutes power from these. From the people called kings, right? So you're my king just because you're at the top, and even kings aren't guaranteed to have nobody above them. For example, in 1066, the Duke of Normandy conquers England and is there and is that and then is then has himself crowned king of England, but he still owes fealty to the king of France. So he's the king of England, but by being the Duke of Normandy and 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 uh. Um, and Anjou, he owes fealty to the king of France, and he can't throw that off, right? Because socially, he can't do it. Right. That's how that system worked, right? Um, he can't just say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that anymore because that's how the system worked. But throughout the 12th century, this rhythm starts to uh, change because uh, certain magnates started to coalesce their power much more um, uh, efficiently. So not only did the king of France or the, the king of England, who also was over the western part of France, but it's the Angevin Empire, um, they started to coalesce. They started to find ways to take that power that was so like widely distributed into all these little, tiny, little castellanies and little, little power centers and started drawing it back to them. And also figures like Dukes and Counts who are theoretically high up in the chain, but as far as how far that power goes, are not that powerful during the 12th century, they start to become more powerful too by doing things like streamlining administration, right? They start to employ, uh, rather than other, you know, rather than you guys all owe me fealty. So you're going to report to me. They start to have just hired administrators administering their counties and their duchies. Right. And so it starts to erode the power of these nobles. And then you have all sorts of nobles going off to various wars, right? They go fight in these wars and many die and don't come home. Whole swaths of, of young knights die at, at, in, 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 in battle and, and established aristocrats go to battle as well and don't come home. In the past, when you had a vacant castellany like that, the it was the responsibility of the, the higher magnate to give that to somebody else right give that to somebody that's what happens in the in the epics is who somebody died who who are we going to give this to right that's how gerard gets his if somebody if somebody dies and he's this it's available for him right so he takes it well you've got these counts and dukes and, and the king of france especially who stop doing that they stop buying your loyalty by giving you a thief and they just say no that's just part of my holdings now I'm just going to keep these because then my power is stronger than I'm the most powerful lord in the region, right? Yeah. So in, in other words, power becomes to be much more centralized, right? Both regionally and on a much broader scale, you know, the kings of Europe start to have real power again, right? At the expense of these smaller, unlanded knights, right? These knights who, their only hope, they're not the firstborn sons, they're not gonna inherit what their dad has. Their only hope is to find somebody who has some land that they can divide up and give them some. But they're not doing that as much anymore. That's becoming harder and harder to get. So there's pressures on this lifestyle, these expectations. I'm supposed to be a knight, I'm supposed to be doing these things, but it's not happening. Um, it's there are fewer opportunities right it's the 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 supply demand situation is is uh is off and so that's how i'm reading it is these the epics at this point in time uh all of them take on a much more rebellious tone they they they're very much interested in telling these stories about good guys who rebel or who do things to get what they need to have which is land they need to be ultimately end up with land so that they can have some social and economic stability you know that's that's the only way you can you can uh, ultimately get married and start a new little new little uh line of 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 you know epic family is to have your um to to, to gain to gain land and so so to me to me it seems like a like a literary reaction within the epic tradition to these changes in the world um, to the expectations. So the social expectation is that this is what knights do, this is how they live their life, this is how you find a happy ending. but now that's changing out in the world that, that creates pressure. And so who are we anymore then? Right. And this is sort and of like a, this is sort of like a reaffirming of this is who we are. We just have guys who are supposed to be giving us better deals who are not doing it anymore. And so it's okay to rise up in revolt, Beca- but it, and it's not treachery, treachery because it's because not motivated by pride. It's not motivated huh. by jealousy. It's not motivated by envy. It's because we deserve it's this. It's necessity. We deserve it. We've served, and that and there are there are sections that I'm analyzing the the, the language very closely where they say. I've been serving Charlemagne for 7 years now. When am I going to get my land, you know? Like it's time. And so one of the, one of these brothers even has it out in Charlemagne's court to Charlemagne's face. It's my turn. Give me some land right now or I'm going to do something about it, you know? It's, and it's this like amazing moment and so you can just imagine if you're if you're a knight who's maybe went on crusade and came back and saw most of your buddies die and you you're back. And well, why isn't the count of champagne giving me a a thief? Why, why haven't I gotten anything yet? I did all this stuff. What's going on? You hear a story like this and you're going to say, yeah, yeah. Like that guy's speaking for me. You know, I did my service. I should get some land.
0: It's becoming clear to me then that they're, they're not traitors. This is almost like civil disobedience. Yeah, kind of. They're like, that's that's fascinating that they're like, don't, don't take these stories as rebellion and just chalk us up to be terrorists, right? It's like yeah. there's another side to the story. And we know what treacherous people look like. They look like this guy in the Song of Roland. We're yeah. not those guys.
1: We're that's those fascinating.
0: Guys.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, we're about out of time here. Um, this went, uh, hopefully, not too long i've enjoyed every minute of it i know it's more time than i think uh we planned for um but man that is that is super interesting i love uh first off i love learning about history and uh, uh, these things that you've shared but this idea of balancing what are what are audiences wanting and how does the storytelling shape identity but also how does it uh depict identity right because one man's rebellious loyal subject which sounds like uh an oxymoron but is probably closer to a paradigm or not a paradigm a paradox a, a paradox uh, a, a loyal rebellious servant um, uh uh-huh. what is the difference between them and a traitor and apparently there is a line so last last thing i want to mention um does it blow your mind that like somebody wrote these like someone wrote these down you know what 1800 years ago yeah Uh, a little less than that i guess if you were saying
1: so the the kind of the dates are like 1180 to 1210 so okay it's like a it's like a it's like a thousand years ago okay so like a thousand
0: years ago they're written um does it blow your mind that like someone like a human wrote these things down they survived through the ages and they are reaching you today and you live in an absolutely 100% different world than that individual who wrote it. And yet their ideas, their thoughts, their experiences are transmitted almost like telepathy through time to reach you today. And, you know, provide enlightenment or at least intrigue and curiosity, but also learning and like does that not just blow your mind
1: it does that's what's so incredible with the whole thing is that you know i mean the layers the layers that you have to go through even just to be able to read one of these things you know there's the 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 distance in time there's the geographical distance there's the linguistic difference right these are written in what old french Old French, yeah. Which is not contemporary. This is is not at all. This is this is not like this is not like uh, like oh like read Shakespeare like that's that's like old English. No, that's not old English. And that's uh, Shakespeare is the same language we speak today. Um, This is like reading Beowulf, right? If you've seen Beowulf in its original, its its original Anglo-Saxon, like it's it's a different language, and once you learn it, you go, oh okay, I do see how this is English. I do see how English came from this. It's the same case with, with Old French. You just, you know, uh, being fluent in French is helpful, but it you have to learn it like a language. But what's great is once you get through those layers, so you, you gain the historical understanding to overcome the temporal and geographical distance, and you gain the, ling- the linguistic competence to overcome the language barrier, when you're reading these things it is so familiar yeah their world is so different than ours but they are just humans and humans are we are just i mean we are so close to one another as human beings it's it's incredible even if you don't fully understand like well why are these ones rebels and why are these ones not traitors something something about these still just resonates and you're just like, oh yeah, like, but I can totally like, you know, like I, I, I read these, you know, I like, I yeah. I, I get, I'm, I'm enjoying these. Um, like I said earlier, it's, 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 it, they very much remind me of like superhero stories. They're, they, they really remind me of that kind of, they, they appeal to me, almost in the same way that comic books did when I was younger. And so, yeah, they, they, they just still resonate because it was written by a human being who was trying to put their their idea, their story down. And here I am more than a thousand years later reading this, and I can, I can get a peek into their, their mind, into their life.
0: It's crazy because you talk about how they're writing about the good old days of Charlemagne. 200 years later. And it's just interesting to think that they're not, these writers aren't living day to day thinking, man, I'm writing in the dark ages or the middle ages. Yeah. In their mind, they are writing in modern times. Uh huh. It's today. This is the time. Right. And then we look back on it's like, oh, well, it's like so long ago and we feel like we're living in modern times, but it's sobering to me because you, you have to realize, that in a hundred years, people will look back on our time, and it will be given a name like the Roaring Twenties or the,
1: uh-huh. you know,
0: the the good old days in the nineteen fifties, and um, you know, nineteen forties is the war years, and like we're like, oh no, yeah. we're in modern times, but eventually history will look back on us in a similar in a similar light, and it just it just says to me like like stories matter, and they really do. Connect generations. They they connect us across human history. Um, yeah. Yes. Exactly. So I guess that's just been sort of my uh, um, the genesis of this podcast is just talking about stories and why they matter and encouraging people to tell their stories, um, write things down, and I loved that I'm able to tell the story of. Mary Beck, <laughs> <And> <laughs> your, your many breaking and entering experiences, um, and actually create a document in time that will forever remember the, that experience and hopefully share it with a few other people. Yeah, I was, um, I was
1: not expecting to talk about that today. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was, was intentionally fun, not. That was, I,
0: that was a fun curveball. Yep. I, was inten- I intentionally didn't tell you that that's where I wanted to start things today. Um, but I do like starting with the story.
1: See, in my own story, I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't yeah, a, traitor. a traitor. I was lying to preserve my <laughs> my freedom. You've like done. I yeah. was justified. Like I had well, to stay out of trouble.
0: <laughs> truth be told, in your mind, you thought it was a small deal. And so you lied to keep it a small deal. You're like, this yeah. isn't like that big of a thing. So everybody's the hero from their own perspective. (laughs) So there's the tie in. Did not expect that to come full circle, but it did. Hey, Clayton, thanks thanks so much for spending the time. Um, Absolutely. I I do anticipate in the future, uh, bringing you back on to talk further about things like this. Um, And I find it super interesting and super beneficial. And once again, just go out there, tell your stories, write things down share them because they'll inspire and help other people help us all understand a little bit more what 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 it means to be this thing that is human.